Switzerland, Slovenia, Norway. Attention. Yes, uh, Zeno, he's a sculler who has good days and bad days. Who knows what this is going to be. So far in this regatta, nothing's gone particularly wrong for him. But here is Zeno Muller, very strong, powerful, contained sculler, makes no mistakes, moves very well indeed. And just challenging now and moving ahead is Switzerland's Zeno Muller, moving ahead of the world champion, Schopp. But here's Zeno, and we're into the last quarter of the race, and the pressure really being piled on. The Canadian on the far side, and Muller, now Switzerland, here he is, and he looks as if he's full of power. Absolutely powerful on that catch, he's winding it right up, and he's moving, he's moved past Langer, he's moved past Langer, he's almost now onto Derek Porter. 350 metres to go, and Zeno Muller has wound it up, he's moving fantastically well, very, very, and he's moved right past Porter. He's moved right past Porter, half a length. In 20 strokes, Muller went right through first and second place, and he's now in front by three quarters of a length. And he's pulling away as well, and not for the first time. In fact, for the second time in the space of 30 minutes, a Canadian sculler has been asked a serious question and can't respond. In fact, no one can respond. This is enormous now. Muller pulling away every stroke. He's going further. And look at his face there. He knows he's got this. He's looking to his left there, and he's so strong. The rest can't do anything about it. Porter's being overhauled here by Langer. They've got the battle for the silver and bronze. But Clearwater and Zeno Muller striding out for Switzerland. He's not going to be caught. This is a fantastic burst to take the gold medal. And who gets the silver? Welcome to The Rose Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. South Africa. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. Hello ladies and gents and welcome to another epic interview of the Rose Show and yeah as always it's uh, your host Lawrence Britton and Jake is on the other line. How are you doing Jake? Yeah well, Lawrence it's, it's good to be back and today we are speaking to an Olympic gold medalist and this time we speak to Zeno Muller who represented Switzerland in the single skulls getting a gold medal at the 1996 Atlanta Games and then went on to win silver medal at the 2000 Olympic Games and definitely uh, one of the best that trained in the single and a formidable character to go up against in racing. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we've done the last few episodes of the Road Show have all been uh, single skulls. We've definitely got a, a single sculler theme going on at the moment. And it's really cool to just go back in time a little bit and, and to hear the, the racing from a, kind of a little different perspective. I think Zeno... He's uh, he had some awesome experiences, and I mean his race is unbelievable. I'd really go watch that uh, that race because it's 
just absolutely brutal the second half of his race he really comes with a thunder and he puts on a huge second half of the of the race to to win the gold and beating huge names in the sport and you know the skull has always had these big names uh, rolling around and and uh, 1996 is is no different to how big the the names were rolling in the single and so really exciting interview i mean you guys are going to hear uh, he didn't give us uh, much chance to to ask the questions. We had tons of questions to to ask him, but he kind of had his uh, his own plan for for the episode, and and he kind of took over and uh, and ran with it. But no less, it was awesome and really cool to to chat and hear his journey and his story. And yeah, Jake, a, a little different interview, I think. Hey, uh, definitely a, a quite a different interview. It's it was definitely one of our challenging uh, interviews to try and steer the ship in the direction that we wanted it to go. But uh, what you definitely get is why Zeno, the personality and, you know, the, the personality, the character behind the success that he ach- uh, achieved, you know, medals with, uh, Olympic success with, you really get that coming across in the interview. And you can kind of understand, you know, in all the interviews we speak about, uh, you get a sense of what makes a person successful, what's their own brand of success. And without a doubt, you're going to get Zeno Muller, Olympic gold medalist in this interview. Um, but it was, it was a really cool interview, a bit different to, like you said, the ones we've done in the past, but I'm sure you guys are going to love it. Yeah. And I think another interesting element was like, you know, a lot of athletes were talking about, uh, you know, the skill, the, the training, the like preciseness of rowing and trying to, get the headspace in the exact right place and and Zeno takes it from a different perspective and he he kind of takes the like aggression and the hunger part of of rowing and really uh takes that in and, and uses that to to find his speed so it's it's really cool to to hear you know the way the rowing uh race is broken down from a different perspective and I really enjoyed uh hearing that and hearing the the aggression that he had towards rowing it was uh, really exciting it's always nice to chat to to athletes that had their success a, a while ago because their their results and their, their they they understand their results so much better uh, than people that have recently uh, achieved those those successes so yeah really different uh, interview but really awesome and i hope you guys enjoy it so much uh, before we get going, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. Please, guys, share the show. Uh, we're still growing like crazy, and it's really awesome. And thanks for all the support and the messages. But uh, yeah, just make it your job to to just tell one more person um, about the row show and and let them know about it and and get them listening so that we can just keep growing and keep having these amazing stories and amazing uh, athletes on our show. And anything else, Jake? Um, and yeah, of course, guys, if you'd like to support us on PayPal, we are there, so you can go follow uh, our link on our Instagram to our SoundCloud account, and then you can support us with PayPal if you would like. But also, sharing the show is just as important. It really helps uh, get the message out there. And, you know, that's probably enough of Lawrence and I blabbing off. So enjoy the show. Sweet, guys. Enjoy, and let's get into it. Attention. What's up, guys? Another episode of The Row Show, and I'm super excited to say that we are sitting down with Zeno Muller from Switzerland. Zeno, how are you doing? Hi, you guys. I'm lovely. Yeah, really, really awesome cool to, to have you on the show. And, uh, I mean, this has been a, an episode we wanted to do for, for quite a while, seeing as you are such a rowing legend and, and still so iconic in the, in the sport. And we've got some really, really cool... Uh, results to to get into and but before we get to the results uh, let's just have a quick uh, chat on 
this uh, COVID-19 crisis that uh, the world is facing right now and how has that affected you and like how has it changed your your day-to-day life at the moment? You know, most of the work that I do is from home. I coach rowers worldwide and um, as you know, most rowers should have some sort of a rowing device at home. So they send me the footage and I go over their technique and we discuss um, the psychology of the whole thing besides training. And, you know, it's amazing. I, I do real-time coaching with the rowers uh, as if nothing were. So for me, nothing has changed except for the few times that I might be going uh, coaching out on the water. But overall, I'm, I'm one of the very lucky few people who, uh, who just keeps on trucking along. My four kids are home. They're all students. And um, we're very lucky. So business as usual for me, probably a little bit more busy than than without the virus. Yes. So, Zeno, I'm sure you've spoken many times about your, your 1996 gold medal race at the Olympics. And it is going to be no different on the road show. Both Lawrence and I are huge fans of that race. And I think, you know, the single skull is definitely an event that has many... Uh, memorable races at the Olympics, at World Championships, but your race in 1996 is definitely at the at the top of that list. And you know, uh, we we want to chat about obviously the race overall, how you're feeling, what it was like winning. But I especially want to want to talk about your last 500 meters because that was phenomenal. You don't often see that in a rowing race, and it definitely seemed like something that you had planned to execute beforehand. And the manner in which you did execute that was almost um, you know, the only other time I kind of think of something like that was in 2000 with the French pair. So chat to us a bit about that. You know, that last 250 or that last 300 is literally the snowball on top of the iceberg. And let me just, let me just tell you that my first Olympics was in 1992. I was 20 years old. My dad was still alive. He did have cancer. And I barely missed the finals by half a boat length behind Eric Verdong, New Zealand scholar who won a couple of bronze medals, won in the Olympics in 88. And I was so frustrated and angry that I didn't make it because I had potential to get the medal because the Polish fellow, Ketan Broniewski, he ended up winning that bronze medal. And a couple of months before that, I actually beat Ketan in Germany at the uh, World Cup. So I was all mad as heck and uh, frustrated to the bone when I came back to uh, the land. And somehow, you know, I'm 20 years old. Harry Mann was uh, probably coaching another boat at the time. No one minded uh, what, where I was going to go. And someone picked me up and said, hey, Zeno, you need to go do a live interview with, um, with Swiss television. And I said, okay, good. And I was so amped up with, with rage. <laughs> Not that I was going to hurt anyone, but I was bloody mad. And so I walked over, sat down. And of course, the first thing they asked me is, uh, so how are you feeling? And I said, I'm mad. In four years, I'm going to win the gold medal in Atlanta. And I feel like I was like the little lion cub that got eaten up by all the lions around me and holy cow the amount of flack that i got a couple months later from swiss rowing federation when i was already, when I was already back at school they said zeno 
uh, how you spoke was really not that appreciated among the people here in Switzerland, because after all, that sounded like you're really full of yourself with a loud mouth. And all I felt was what I felt in my heart that I wanted to achieve that. Um, later, later in 1992, my dad passed away. Um, I finished up another year of rowing with Brown University in, um, in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, it was good. But the problem was I was not as rowing fit as I should have been to make the world championship in the single skull in 1993. So I was pushed into a double skull because the fellow who had double skull, Uli, beat me at the Swiss national championship, which I had been winning year after year. So another, another drop into the gravel pit I was in 1993 at the World Championship. So 1992 was, was pain. 1993, I stood on the shores watching the single skulls final row by with Thomas Lange, Vaclav Chalupa, and Derek Porter racing for the finish line. And Derek Porter beat uh, Thomas Lange for the first time, and Thomas Lange was my idol. And being my idol, I thought, you know, how can you ever beat the idol? And there was Derek Porter who did it. And um, as I was watching the single skull go by, I was crying um, because uh, I was supposed to be in that race. That, it, that is where I was supposed to be. So... About half an hour later, or a little longer, I was waiting for the shuttle that was going to take me back to the hotel, and Derek Porter walks uh, to the shuttle with his uh, gold medal around his neck, and, um, and I congratulated him, and, uh, because I said, oh my gosh, Derek, great race, I never thought that Thomas Lange could be beaten, right, because Thomas Lange is the freaking Terminator. And so, <laughs> so he, he, did, he didn't acknowledge me. I mean, he said, thank you. But, you know, it's like I was looking up to him and I, and, and I wanted to have something more come from him than just the driest possible answer of him actually becoming the first time world champion in his rowing career. And I felt really dejected. Okay. And what he didn't know, what Derek didn't know is that... Uh, I was probably at my most vulnerable um, at that point, and I and he didn't know that, right? That I was on the ground, in literally, figuratively bleeding, and he he threw some salt on me, and all I could think about is my eyes rolling back like a freaking shark, and I swore to myself that I was going to beat him into the <laughs> ground any opportunity I was going to have, and the problem with that is. When you, when you are a leading person, you have to think that people who look up to you, one day might, might come after you really, really hard. I'm not saying you have to walk on eggshells, but, but think what, what the, when you express yourself, be positive, be encouraging, and you might not, you might not come up with somebody like me, because then... I went back, and my breakthrough year was 1994 in the single skull. Um, I, I set the world record on the water. Who cares about world records? Right? Because bloody 
bloody wind or hot water. But I, I, nonetheless, at the road say, I, I beat the road say record. And then um, a week later, at the International Rowing Regatta, I beat the, um, the international best time. And Derek Porter was beaten in 1994 by me in the semifinal. Uh, in 1994, there were only two people who, there were three semifinals. Only two people went through. He, he was the third one in that semifinal. And then in 1995, only two people would go through. And that was in Tampere in Finland in that semifinal. Or, yeah, uh, Thomas, Lange, me, and Derek. And it was me and Thomas who made it through to the, through to the final. So Derek, again, was beaten. And then, then rolls around 1996. And then in 1996, I've got Derek in the semifinal. And by God, I mean, Derek, I, I'm sorry if, if I ever came across as someone who, who felt like hated your guts. But it's like it's this competitive uh, world where you're only as good as your last race. We have absolutely no wiggle room financially as rowers. We give everything we've got in our lives to do the best we can in rowing. We get no recognition pretty much by the larger media, which, has, which is good and bad. I can go, go into that later. But then in semifinal at the Atlanta Olympics, Derek was in the race, in the semifinal against me. And he led the race until 250 meters to go. And I was not going to let him. I was not going to just qualify. I needed, I needed that victory against him. And so I pushed through and he turned the engine off at into the last 250 meters because either he thought I'm going to get you seen at the, the next uh, in a couple of days or he thought this is going to get a little hard. I don't know. All I knew is no bloody hell. You're not going to get past me. So when when we're talking about the last 250 meters for Saturday with um, at the finals, you know, I recreated the same race I had in the heat, in the semi, and in the final. I didn't have to change my, my procedure because in the heat, I had Chop, who won the world championship the year before. And there aren't, very, there aren't many people that I really enjoy this, uh, that enjoyed that much because we didn't really have the opportunity to talk much. The person I enjoyed the most is Rob Waddell. Rob Waddell from New Zealand. Uh, but by that time, I didn't know Rob yet. Um, so we ended, up, we ended up, I ended up doing the same race pattern. I didn't have to change what I needed to do in order to win. And then, of course... Um, come those last 250 meters, which thanks to Marty Aitken, an Australian coach who was, who was uh, the Swiss national team coach, who really tied my loose ends together. The rage that I was carrying with me over time. He came into my life after me coming in sixth in 1995, in Finland, which was another, in a way, uh, de total defeat for me, he, I changed coaches an hour after that race when I came in sixth in Finland, a year before the Olympics in Atlanta. And Marty was ready. 
Marty knew something was going to be up, and he was our national team coach. And he um, he's a short guy with a little mustache. Maybe by now he has um, he has it cut off. He looks like the Monopoly man, a slim one. But um, he definitely was. And the reason I say this is because he you could feel that he was in charge. He knew that there is a way to channel people's energy, motivation, rage. He was able to bring coaches within a national team together. Really good, really fun. He showed up a few times in California when I was um, training by myself to get ready for the 1996 Olympics because I, I never trained in Switzerland. The only times I trained was... Um, was during summer times in Switzerland. So most of my training I've always done by myself. But what I learned from Marty, and this comes back to those last 250 meters, is that I'm, we are applying what the Searle brothers did for the 1992 Olympics when the Searle brothers beat up and Yale brothers for the gold medal in the Cox Fair. And that formula worked just perfectly fine. We had... We, we train those last 250 meters so that it comes instinctively. And that was, that was the result. The result was all these downs and these fights that I, I had thinking about different individuals, Derek Porter mainly, um, that led me to an ability to go into this sort of flow, into this rage rage trance when i watched them when i watched the re, uh, the rerun um and they say oh look oh look he's smiling right oh he knows he's there he's smiling bloody hell if you took the glasses off my face you would have a rage 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 <laughs> eyes you know you cover you cover someone's eyes up and you kind of uh, smile like a crazy person and then you take their hands off and you can see that the eyes are like a freaking possessed, right? So, so I, it was funny, right? So, um, so, okay, so all this rage and like, and determination and, and coming into this, this race and, and being able to, to put it all together. But I mean, at least from the commentary side of things, it doesn't sound like you were a, a major favorite for the race. You know, they're really are focusing on some of the other guys. And I mean, you're coming through the thousand meter mark, uh, a length and a half down and then and only once you start to to come into the the picture do the the commentators get excited i mean did you feel going into the start of the race that uh, that that it was going to happen for you you on the video you see me uh, shake my shoulders i was moving my shoulders left and right it was really strange i think there was a thunderstorm that morning um the water was really black, and I felt, I, it's almost I felt a little dizzy, and that's not a good feeling to have, all right, because you want to feel the connection when you set the blade in, you, you want to feel the boat, but when I was shaking my shoulders left and right, I thought it was as if I couldn't really feel that I was sitting in the boat. Those first thousand meters was like me rowing, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel that I was working that hard. It was the weirdest thing. And when I was behind Chop, because, okay, there's one thing about Chop that was really, really always great, is Chop was very consistent with his, uh, with his racing. So I knew that if I tagged along with Chop, 
that I am going to stay in the race. And especially when I, when I didn't feel that I was really fully there in the boat. So I use Chop to make sure that I'm sticking with him. Um, the weird thing at the thousand meter mark, though, is that I was fourth. And Marty had told me, Zina, don't let Porter go too far out ahead. Don't let Porter go too far out ahead. But at that point, I was, I, my, 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 my lifeline here was Chop. Because I really didn't want to be beaten by Chop. There's nothing worse than to be beaten by <laughs> by, by Chop. All right, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, what what I'm loving about the Zeno is that you you you're mentioning so many big names, and I think that's for me when I was doing my research. One thing that stuck out to me almost immediately was in the '90s when you were racing. The amount of legends that were busy racing in their prime was phenomenal. It's almost, it almost seemed to me the similar way we look back at heavyweight boxing in the 90s with Mike Tyson and Vanda Holyfield. It seemed in the 90s in the single skulls on the men's side, you had Rob Woodell, Yuri Janssen, a young Mossal hacker, Thomas Langer, who was a double Olympic champion, Istok Chop, Derek Porter, and Vaclav Chalupa. Speak to us about racing these guys and maybe a bit about the guys that you, you maybe enjoyed racing, maybe uh, like you were talking about Istok, and maybe what, what about the guys that you didn't enjoy racing? Maybe who, who are the guys that made you nervous? Okay, let's put it this way. I grew up in the first three years I lived in Switzerland, and the rest of it I was in a foreign country. My dad worked for a U.S. company, and we moved around. Um, when I started rowing, I lived in France. In France, I was... Um, uh, put put in the same pool as the German kids at the international school. So I was just one of the German kids with with among the many French kids. So I did not have a real identity, national identity. So when I started rowing and I started getting better at it, I found that that was my identity. People uh, within club levels started recognizing, oh, that's Zena from so-and-so club. So that was really... That was really important. When I would go into international rowing, I would always feel that I don't belong anywhere. And because I don't belong anywhere, I'm going to punish the other people because I'm angry. Now, again, I mean, if, if you, after this podcast, you start thinking, holy cow, Zeno had quite a few fights in his own head. You are absolutely right. If I look back the way I am right now because we're talking about it, is I am glad this is behind me. Because the amount of anger and rage that I was trying to channel into a rowing stroke, trying to move that little boat that's 14 kilograms uh, uh, heavy, and I would, I would visualize races, and I would bring myself to tears, and again, rage, right? Um, so when I would race these rowers, I had... I never spoke to many of them. I mean, the only person I spoke to was uh, Rob. I think I mellowed out. I got. I did mellow out a little bit after 1996. Okay, winning in 1996 gave me, for myself personally, a stamp of approval, an international stamp of approval that it really didn't matter where you are, where you truly belong in this world, because you. The, the Olympics signed off saying, okay, he, he's met the standard, so it doesn't really matter anymore. So I think I became a little bit more relaxed um, after 1996. Um, 
I really did not enjoy racing Cup because the feeling I got from Cup is that um, it was like, I, you know, it's one thing when you don't talk to uh, athletes and you, but you acknowledge them and you say hello to them. But it always felt like that was Cup. There was some sort of a hidden agenda. They kind of look at look at others or looked at me, um, thinking, yeah, I'm going to kick your ass all the time. It was kind of a smirk behind it. But that may, again, that may just have been in my, in my psychotic <laughs> state of competition, right? Um, but, but you wouldn't get that from other athletes, from other, like, for example, Rob Odell, I didn't get that at all. Was it maybe uh, a language barrier with some of the people? Maybe. But I didn't get that through Thomas Lange either. Thomas Lange, what a, what a beautiful, calm, collected, smart, intelligent person. To, I mean, if you were to put me right next to Thomas Lange talking about the Olympics, we would be different. I mean, I, I speak, literally, I, I feel the fire in me as I'm speaking to you guys. Um, he would be far more calm and collected, so would be Rob Waddell. Um, so I enjoyed Rob and, 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 and Thomas. I... I also felt pretty good, even though I never spoke to Chalupa that much. Um, I almost felt a little bad for Chalupa because he never, he never had really the chance to get the gold medal. But I was really, really happy for him when he won the silver medal in the, in the, in the quadruple skull. I think that was 2004. or Yeah, 2004, he won his first or second silver medal. 1992, he won the silver medal in um, in the single skull, and then later in um, in the quadruple skull at the age of I don't know 40, 41 or so. Um, but th those are the people that uh, that I remember. The one fellow that is a little bit obscure, okay, is uh, Taga. Now Taga is a Romanian single scholar. He gave me a lot to bite on in 1994. In 1994, when I told you guys I, I had done the fastest time in the single skull recorded in uh, Aterozzi, Targa was the one who was pushing me hard down that racetrack. And I have the race on YouTube. The weird part about racing Targa was, was a, week, um, a week before that. I was at the Henley Royal Regatta and, um, in the semifinal. So I, I lead Targa, I was racing Targa, I lead Targa, and then he turns his engine off. Some, somewhere around, I, I don't know, uh, shortly before halfway, okay, shortly before halfway, he turns the engine off and starts paddling, and I was maybe, I was two and a half lengths ahead of him. And I thought, okay, well, thank you very much for doing that. And I got, I I was just born again then. He turned the engine back on. And that was a weird thing because I never experienced that before. He turned the engine back on and holy crap, he almost started um, catching me. And I thought, holy crap, I, I have got to pull it together. And so Targa, Targa in Henley showed me to never, ever <laughs> think you have it in the bag. <laughs> 
<laughs> on the old, on so, the old bow line across the finish line. Oh, I must say, that doesn't and sound so, like a, an effective Henley uh, technique. I don't think it would uh, pay no. off too many <laughs> times. <laughs> but so I want one of the things I want to go into because like so a lot of the guests that we that we interview we 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 often end up talking about like the you know the finesse and the skill and the you know the the magic that's around uh, rowing. And actually something that we don't get into that often is like the, the raw aggression and the, the kind of uh, anger that you have to have against uh, a race. And I mean, obviously you need a balance and you need both of them, but just hearing you talk about like, you know, harnessing the, the anger and more just over such a long period of time to kind of hone your skills um, is really, really interesting. And like in really a unique way, because I mean, rowing is, a brutally difficult sport and so um, physical that if you don't have a bit of that uh, that anger and that that drive to beat uh, the people next to you, it's it's kind of never going to happen. Um, you know, yeah, Drew Ginn, Drew Ginn, I listened to Drew Ginn and he compared cycling for against the clock for an hour or a race against the clock that's roughly an hour long versus rowing 2,000 meters. And what he said was, the effort is the same in a way. You are dead at the end. But it is an explosion of power in 2,000 meters, whereas over the course of one hour on the bike, it's far more evenly distributed. And the reason why, I'm, why I was thinking about Drew saying this is because... You know, here you are, these wild, these wild um, uh, psy- psyches. Okay, uh, um, I, I was not, I was not a calm person in that sense, and yet we had to sit in a boat that's not lo- wider than our own hip bones. We sit on top of these little needles, right? We are given these very, very light oars, and how we place the blade in the water matters so much for the run of the boat. If you don't use your body like a prima ballerina, you will not go fast. And and those two together, this raw rage, where you would just um, want to kick and scream and punch wildly until you fall unconscious, and take that energy and put it into a little cockpit where if you don't row as well as I just said, like prima ballerina, you're not going to win. The amount of time it took me to figure out how to harness and channel that rage back into that thin boat is, it took a while and it took a few coaches, right? And Harry Mann, Harry Mann is definitely one who, who was the greatest and at the same time, one of the most frustrating experiences I've ever I've ever felt is when, you know, Harry Harry Mann found me at age sixteen on a lake in in Switzerland at Easter camp uh, with the Grasshopper Club, and it was totally flat water. It was a beautiful morning, blue sky, mountains around. It was an art gold hours outside of uh, uh, Lucerne, and and I was rowing along, and then from afar away. If the, if the lake is as big as it is, you almost have a little horizon. And so, so all of a sudden, that 
that coaching launch that he was in, that I knew he was out there, started circling towards me. And then he started, started coaching me. And I swear, when he, over the years, when he was telling me when to put the blade in, uh, he would watch my stern. Okay? He, would, he would have his coaching launch right next to me. He would pick the speed off my boat. And then he would start telling me when I was supposed to catch the boat. I put the blade in the water, you do the catch. And the most frustrating thing is that he would say it to me halfway up the slide. Okay, so halfway up the slide, he started noticing that my boat was slowing down too much and that I actually had to go pick it up. And, but he didn't verbalize what I needed to change in doing that. I don't remember what he told me. Yeah. So Ed, I'm I'm going to cut in there because there's there's cool stuff that I want to I want to talk about. So um, I really like the, the 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 talk on on picking the boat up and how important it is. And I think it's something that you do extremely well in uh, in 1996 is when you start to kick and when you start to build speed on the boat. The the front end of the stroke is is so sharp and so quick uh, compared to to the other scullers around you and then that just takes me on to to just the skull in general and how so like how do, how come you ended up in the skull racing for the racing the skull so much when you were at uh, an american universities rowing in the eights all the time and you know why why what kept bringing you back uh, to the single skull okay that's beautiful look i I went to the junior world championship for two years in the single skull, 89 and 90. 1991, I went to the world championship at the elite level and in the single skull, I came in, uh, I think, eighth. And then I started uh, my freshman year at Brown. So I had a history in the single skull before I started my first year at Brown. Um, we shipped my single skull to the Brown University Boathouse. So when I was when I started rowing as a freshman at Brown, um, I knew that the 1992 Olympics were going to happen. So I I was rowing in the morning once uh, once school ended at Brown, which was around May May 5th May 15th. I was rowing in the morning for two hours in the single skull, and then at 9 a.m. the eight the eight. Um, um, uh, training would start and we would have two practices a day so I definitely had plenty of, of, of training because of that but I was I was rowing the single skull on my own to get ready to qualify for the Olympics in 1992 now what did I learn from rowing at Brown this is one of the most beautiful things ever once I had the experience of being an innate I took that team into the single skull. After me learning what it felt like to be in an eight, I never felt alone in the single skull, ever. It was like when you're in an eight and you've got to go, you have a herd mentality. You, you charge the others. You charge the finish line. And if you don't move with everyone else, you're going to either hurt the person in front of you or you're disrupting with the handle, right? You, you hammer the person with the handle in their back or, or you just completely fail the entire team. So what I got out of Brown is that 
these, I wouldn't call them ghosts, but I was there with my, with, with the, with the souls that I had with me when I was rowing physically those eights. So that's what came. When I raced as a, as a 20 year old at the Olympics, I had, I didn't have, I wasn't afraid. I had this herd mentality. I was walking around with eight other people, including the coxswain. Oh, nice. You know, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's something that we that we don't from from that point of view we don't hear a lot is um, is the movement from the eight into the smaller boats um, yeah. because there are very few athletes that have done that um, and then just just moving forwards you know one th another part uh, awesome part of your career that we we're excited to talk about is your your 2000 Olympic campaign and the race at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. We know you, you took a year off in 1997, and it seems like you came back online in 1998 with, as you, I'm sure, as you could put it, with some fire and some vengeance. And chat to us a bit about uh, the campaign and, and racing at the Olympics and that, that awesome race with Rob Waddell. Okay. In 1996, I got married to my wife, Erin, and she luckily, that was in December 31st, luckily she saw me race in Atlanta. I invited her to come see me. We had only been going out for three weeks. And in September of 1996, we had a civilian wedding. And then in uh, December 31st, we had a uh, church wedding. So if you do the math, we only knew each other for a few, like, I don't know, five, four months. And then we nice, married, right? nice uh, wedding date, uh, December the 31st. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was fast. I mean, my mother, my mother, like, really? And her, her parents said, holy cow, you're marrying this foreigner. But there was rowing in their family. So it was, the sport of rowing was somehow a, a way to probably um, rationalize uh, that I'm not completely a crazy person. But so 1997, I really thought, I really thought I was done. And then August 1st, which happens to be this national holiday, I, I drag my 20 kilo plus overweight body into the single skull. And what hurt the most was pulling myself back into the catch because my boat was so bloody bow heavy that it was not hard to push the boat, but it was hard to really squeeze myself up into the catch. So my upper part of my calf and my lower part of my hamstring were hurting. But, but, but what was interesting was I then truly realized that I like rowing and training because up to 1996, it was just freaking love-hate and self-loathing and anger and, and, <laughs> and proving that I have an identity crisis. But see, but then after 1996, I got married. My wife brought color into my life. Everything other before that was black and white. I was only as good as a, my last race. And by God, I tell you, had I died after finishing a race before 1996, before meeting my wife, and I would have freaking died, I would have been fine with that. Obviously, you're dead. You, who cares? Right? But, but that's my, that's my, that was my attitude was that, I'm going to row until I 
if I have to freaking die, I'm going and put my poor mom who lost my dad. Said, I mean, I never voiced that to my parents, but I was def definitely that is how sickly focused I was. But after 1996, though, I got married. We got Georgia. Uh, our daughter is now 22. Um, after Atlanta, Georgia. Mind you, I did not name her. My wife said we should call her Georgia because of Atlanta, Georgia. And we went, we went to the 1998 uh, World Cup. I won everything there. And then the only thing I did not win in 1998 was the final race against Rob Waddell in Cologne. But I was happy to win. I was happy to win a silver medal because my start was crap in 1998. And I was able to get the silver medal. So that was cool. And then in 1999, we had our second child together. And, and the reason why I'm saying this is because life gets complicated. Up to 1996, it was just me, myself, and I eat, row, and sleep. And that's it, right? After 1996, you, you, you are becoming more of an adult. Uh, it's, it's, it, life is more than just yourself. And, uh, and I enjoyed it, right? In 1999, everything was good. Oh, haha, bloody hell. 1999, Derek Porter was in my semifinal, and I beat him. And then Derek Porter was in the final in, two, in 1999, and I beat him. Uh, what happened in 1998? I think I, I think I beat him out in the semifinal in 1998. So the curse of 1993 kept going all the way to 2000. So here we come into 2000. Thanks to Marty Aitken, who's this great coach from Australia, knew exactly where we were supposed to go. He took us to Moor Villumba in, uh, in, um, in Queensland, I think, and then New South Wales is where Sydney is. Um, and we had a wonderful three weeks uh, getting ready in Sydney, uh, no, in, in, in Moor Villumba to get ready for Sydney. And it was awesome. I... I would row at uh, 6.30 a.m. and uh, do my second workout at noon so that the afternoon was completely free to hang out with the family and go to the Kurumban Wildlife Sanctuary and be at the, at the beach. That was amazing. I mean, honestly, it, logistically, it was superb. So we go into the 2000 Olympics in Penrith. The interesting part there, being my third Olympics, I was, I knew, I knew what it felt like. 1992, I was wide-eyed, no clue. Okay, wow, everything was wow. In 1996, it was, I better get it together because I can do this. In, in 2000, I was like, hey, I know exactly how I can race to, to be one of the fastest, but not the fastest. So what was interesting about that week is that all bloody morning long, I had to have some cup of tea to get rid of some weird little sore throat that I was getting every morning of the week. No problem, though. I had the great heat. I had, nah, okay, that semifinal, which no one really sees, that semifinal towards the end felt a little strained, okay? That, that was on Thursday. On Thursday after the semifinal, for some weird reason or another, my heart rate was not coming down. My resting heart rate was around 35, 32, okay? I, that heart rate was not coming down from 65. 
on Thursday after the race. It's almost as if I felt like overheated. Friday, luckily, was a down, down day. So I was able to recoup. Come, come Saturday, racing Rob Waddell and everybody else, I felt, I felt good. I felt really, really good. And I knew that, you know, I'm just going to go after it. Really, from the confidence of, a, of this being the third Olympics. So when I took off, I think there were two things that happened. Boat felt amazingly well. If you see, if you see some of the footage of it, the boat, the bow doesn't dip. The boat sits in the water and there is no oscillation of the bow. So to me, technically, I was better in 2000 than I was in 1996, okay? So off we go, and then by, by 1,500 meters, by 500 meters to go, we have this huge lead over the rest of the pack. And then I blew. I blew so hard that my entire body kind of cramped up. It's as if, as, as if I had some sort of a, I don't know, some muscle seizure, okay? Because you can see that all of a sudden I'm cramped up. I start, my face is distorted and everything. And, of, and, and, and Rob, at that point, gets a lead. What happens is that I either miscalculated how far into the race I was, or because the 500 meters, the last 500 meters were the full length of a grandstand. And that is usually not the case. I should have known that, right? Because I've been rowing that course all week long. Usually the grandstands are the last 250 meters. There it was 500. So I, I blew. I blew. I, did, I think I overshot my race by 250 meters for sure. Or, and, was I slightly under the weather because of whatever I was carrying through? Not, I'm not making an excuse. I'm just trying to look back. So when Rob went, I had to deal with the defeat of not winning the gold medal. And then came two of the most, let's put it this way, um, Hacker and Porter were not my favorite people, okay? <laughs> and they were coming at me. They were coming at me. And I, it was Harry Mann, it was my father on, 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 in the stern. I had these voices from my father and from Harry saying, just don't be fourth. And my mom, too. Never be fourth. Just make sure you get a medal, right? And I know because that, that, that feels, that feel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah. so they charged me. They charged me, and they charged me over the course of 500 meters. That was, I was just posting it the other day. I said, what was the longest last 500 meters of my rowing career? That was it. I was dying. And they were coming at me. And so the fact that I crossed the finish line with a silver medal, I had no idea. Some woman came up with, in a Zodiac in a, in, a, in, a, in a boat and gave me water. And I had to ask her, hey, what, what did I get? And then she said, you got the silver medal. And I immediately started crying because I thought I came in fourth. It's really funny you're talking about that because... I I unfortunately know what coming forth feels like at the Olympics. Yeah. It sucks. 
Zina, that brings us to um, the, the, the end part of our interview. And we have these set of questions that we ask all the guests that come on. And they're called the quick fire questions. So we're going to okay. rattle, rattle them off to you. Okay. So first one, if you could race any boat class at the Olympic Games, what would it be? I would want to be in an eight and row two-seater bow. Oh, right, right at the back, Perfect. in the ejector seat there. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. The, ex- the ejector seat is three seat. Oh, I yes, that's true. Yes. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Next, okay, you're just going to be along for the ride there, I see. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no dying in the last 500 meters. You just let, uh, <laughs> yeah. let some if people you, take you across. If, Go, Jake. If you could choose any three people from any time and from anywhere in the world to race in a coxless four with, who would your three crewmates be? It would be um, Thomas Lange. It would be Rob Waddell. And it would be Mahid Rysdale. Oh. I should maybe change that to a coxless quad because that would be disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> that would be really cool. Just this, uh, this quad of thug single scholars. So the yep. next question is... Uh, what is your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again? It doesn't have to be one of yours. It's the British Eight winning the gold medal in 2000. Oh, good really choice. good one. Because Back in black. Harry, because, Harry, because Harry Mann had a huge part in it. Yeah. That, and that... and let, let me just put it this way as well. I also loved watching the St. Paul's team of 2018 break every record on the Henley Royal Regatta race course and wrote exactly the same way as the 2000 uh, British 8 uh, wrote. Uh, it was all Harry Mann technique. Oh, that's cool. Yes, that's that's so, really cool. It's an awesome race. We must make sure I put that down in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the, next, the next one on the spot here, if you were in charge at World Rowing, what would you change? Um... I would make it slightly more exciting for spectators. That's the same old thing always. How can you make it? How can you make rowing kind of fun for spectators? I keep everything else, but um, you know the tug of war rowing idea is kind of fun, right? Where you can t- pull someone over over the uh, over the line, <laughs> or or if you rowed in a circle around the mast. Okay, so who can row uh, as many as circles around the mast, you know, kind of attached to a mast so that yeah. you, you're, you know, I mean, something that shows off um, the, the physical um, um, superiority that we are as rowers, um, athletic superiority that we are compared to other many other sports. Sure. Yeah, those are two interesting uh, concepts there. We have to concepts. dig into them uh, a little bit more. Um, the next question is, uh, which is the obviously the question that every rower and school rower wants to to know, is what is your two k uh, PB on the on the ergo? You know, I the only PB that I got was five fifty three. Okay, now once I came to California, I didn't touch an erg again. And that was in 1995, in November of 1995, until, until I was done, 
I stopped using the ERG. But remember this, right? My fastest time for 2,500 meters, because that's how long, how far we had to row, was I think, was I think 727, which puts me somewhere around 129 for 2,500 meters. Um, wow. So 553. Shit. You know, if I okay, but oh yeah, 2,500 meters until 1993, I think, and then and then it became 2,000. So I but think then... five five. Yeah. But then, okay, so then uh, maybe not on the Ergo, then what is your best, what's your fastest race uh, in the skull? What's your fastest time in the skull that you've done? 6.37.21, I believe. 1995, racing Yuri Janssen. It was 6.37. Um, he got a 6.37.09, and I think I got 6.37.21. The year before that was 6.38. So Yuri Jansen, myself, and only a handful of other people have rode consistently below 640. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, that's, that's a very impressive time. I think that's much more uh, impressive than going back to, to old Ergos. And I think yeah. even... Yeah, but you know, but hey, wait a minute. It is amazing, though. Ergos have been calculating people's power exactly the same way since since they started with the model b so that's yeah. kind of cool though it's the yeah, that's I that's i think that's why it's so cool and why it's such a big number for rowers is because it's so com so comparable across yeah. the board yeah. Yeah. and yeah. and so consistent i mean as you're saying that's uh, like it's like over 30 years they've had this machine that can produce numbers yeah. so so honestly and uh, and consistently it really is impressive yeah. So last, the last question of today is, you know, is if you could choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, what would it be and why? Oh, a different sport. That's a really good question. Okay. Marathon running. Oh my Lord. Oh. What's, why, why marathon running? Because you can literally run anywhere you want and be completely free. Nice. You you only need your shoes. You don't need to drag around any bloody sporting equipment. Like we always have to worry about the eggshell uh, shells that we are where we have and the oars and everything. Bloody hell, runners have it so easy. They just have their shoes. So marathon running. But okay, let me put it this way: I want to be a marathon runner with the body of a rower. I'd rather have that type of physique than to have the physique of a marathon runner. Yeah. I also think like to, to be fast in the marathon is also like a really, really cool, uh, it's a really cool sport to, yeah, to have a medal run, in. Hey guys, if you run, if you run into an Olympic stadium by yourself because you're the number one, holy cow, that's yeah. got to be one of the coolest feelings. I think yeah. so. So that's a that's a wrap for for all our questions and yeah, just thanks for for giving us a, a bit of your time and and having such a cool chat with us. I think uh, we only covered about a, a fraction of of what we really could have. So we maybe need a, another episode at some point. But is there anything else you want to add? Anything you want to shout out? Uh, what what you're doing? Where people can find you? And uh, and and anything you wanna you wanna add at the end here? You know, um, I, I coach online, I'm accessible worldwide, and the thing that I feel 
particularly lucky about is that the coaches I've had are very few elite coaches that have made a huge difference in the sport of rowing over decades. So that lineage, this elite coaching um, family tree that I was lucky enough to be part of because of some smart decisions from the Swiss Rowing Federation have me gives me the ability to coach others and make them part of that elite coaching family tree. There are ways to row a boat, ways to apply your body that is close to the most efficient way possible to get the most performance out of a, uh, out of a body to do the best, fastest stroke. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, really interesting, and I really like your your videos that you put up. They they're always great to to go and watch. And I'm sure if you listening and you you want a little bit more uh, professional uh, insight into your rowing, uh, you can find Zeno uh, all over the place on social media and just uh, send him a message. And I'm sure you'll uh, organize something for you. Uh, so right. once again, thanks so much, Zeno, and have a good day. And I hope, uh, yeah, hope you have a, a good week. Be safe, guys. Be safe. Bye. Ciao. Cheers. Thanks. Cool, guys. That's a wrap of our Zeno Muller episode. And what a journey and what a ride that was. I still feel like a bit of anxiety and uh, and a bit like I've been in a boxing match uh, after that chat. It was so intense and, and so much information in such a quick, uh, you know, usually our episodes are a bit longer, but I feel like we got even more info into this shorter episode, which is really crazy. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, definitely. I It was one hell of a roller coaster ride. And, you know, thankfully I've taken some time to cool off so I can speak to you guys in conclusion because I was a bit shell-shocked after you know, going in and saying, you know, but I really loved it. You really got a sense of who he is and what made him such a successful athlete. And we mentioned it in the introduction, you know, we don't often hear athletes speaking about things that he speaks about, about the aggression, about the ruthless competition, about, you know, how he approached the race emotionally and, you know, how important that was to him. I think a lot of the times, maybe athletes are too polite and respectful to go into the nitty-gritty stuff with us, and I really appreciate the fact that you know, uh, had the confidence to go into whatever he wanted to speak about. So that was really awesome. Yeah, really, really top chat. And yeah, I think that's uh, all from us today. Just remember, guys, go share the show, uh, tell your friends about it, and yeah, try and get more people listening. That always is a big help to us. You can also go support us on PayPal, and that would be great. Um, and for now, we're out. Uh, we'll see you soon with another Old School Scholar coming up in our next episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Uh, have a great day. Ciao. Yes, Lawrence, you're dropping hints here, dude. Uh, but yeah, anyway, cheers, guys. Uh, stay tuned for what's coming out next with us. I promise you it's going to be a bit uh, a bit related to this interview. You'll see what, what I mean by that later. But anyway, <laughs> cheers, guys. Have a good week. Cheers, we're out. Uh, what's up, guys? Your sound is good. It's just your chair is extremely creaky. Okay. Something is very creaky there. But other than that, that sounds good. The sound so far is good. Uh, you know, you just got like a, a wind chime or some uh, something in the background. Yeah. 
Now, uh, if I'm sitting outside, no. Going inside, you might hear birds and dogs barking. Um, <laughs> You've got to pick. You've got to pick. Hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. No worries. Um, atrial fibrillation, AFib. If you ever do a show on atrial fibrillation, you come find me. Okay, uh, send me send me your five questions.